1 Corinthians 1, 26, 2 through 16. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has really given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. This person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person, person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But we have a mind of Christ. Um, we're going to start today. Uh, just a little bit different than we would normally start a series or a sermon. And that may shape a lot of our time together. I feel like I'm just going to be open-handed about what comes next in this moment. Um, we've been in a series exploring the person and work of the Holy Spirit called The Forgotten God. And it has been a really interesting series to do, uh, and it's been a really interesting series to do throughout this season of life that we have been in. Uh, because it has been uh, just a very difficult series to do. Because every single week of the series, something has happened culturally that I don't know how to respond to. And it's interesting to talk about the Spirit as the agent of life, and it is interesting to talk about the Spirit as the one who moves and heals and makes all things new, as the great Spirit who is 
uh, groaning as the earth groans, as that song and prayer just illustrated, and then to be so in the midst of a world that feels like it is groaning, and then to feel like, oh, I'm supposed to have some kind of word for that. And I don't. Part of the series was during Uvalde. Part of it was during Buffalo. And then even this week, I I know that this news hits people in different ways and in a complexity of emotions, but even this week to watch like America erupt at the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I want so desperately to have some, even as what Paul said in that text that Amanda read for us, he says, I didn't come with expert words or wisdom or reason or persuasion, but everything in me wants to have something that is expert and wise and persuasive to say. And the truth is, is all I have is a deep feeling of inadequacy. Feel pretty inadequate to talk about spirit, to talk about the infinite. It's like trying to name or catch the wind. That in and of itself feels deeply hard to do. But to talk about these moments and and these situations and to give voice to pain and complexity... to offer something that might lead us into love, depth, community, all of that feels really difficult to know how to do. And it's funny, uh, funny is maybe not the right word, funny in like the ironic kind of way. The sermon that I have planned to give today is about the spirit of power and how the spirit so often challenges our attempts at control. And the world's attempts at control and institutions and centers and places of control. And yet here I stand being like, I feel inadequate because I can't control something. And so uh, what I would like to do, because I don't know what to do, um, is just to create some space for prayer together as a body. Um, it's funny, I'd like, that video was already going to be used, and then I felt like it was a good intro for just the moment that we find ourselves in, and, and the different emotions and complexities and frustrations and anger and pain, and uh, just so many of the different things that we might be experiencing and saying. And so I would like to create a moment of prayer. And uh, we've done this before, but if you're new, this might feel a little new or a little strange. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. But in a moment, I would just like to create a space where people can name their prayers. People could say one word, one word of hope, one word of lament, one word of um, truth. I, like, we could just name a word, and then my, my hope is that what we can do is trust that the Spirit of God would be with us, would be the agent of life and truth who unravels antagonisms and intercedes on our behalf with groanings deeper than the words that we know to offer ourselves. And that the Spirit would take my sense of inadequacy and the space that we're providing here and do something much more with it, to give voice to pain, to name dignity, to call us to be a community of, um, just a community of Christ. So I'm just going to take a moment of silence. Um, And if you have a prayer that you would like to name, a word that you would like to say, feel free to just shout it out. Say it out, quietly whisper it out, whatever is the way that feels most comfortable. And then after uh, a time of 
praying together. Um, we'll see what happens when I'll close this. Oh, great spirit, spirit of the living God, spirit who hovered over the surface of the waters before the chaos and brought life, spirit who entered the valley of dry bones and brought flesh to those that were wasted, spirit who entered Mary's womb and birthed the Messiah, spirit who enters our own lives. Would you take these prayers, Take these laments and these cries for help, these promises of justice, these words of hope. Would you make them real in the midst of us? Would you make us a community that is able to embody the hope that you bring to us? Would we be a community that practices courage and perseverance, a community that practices reconciliation, a community that sees justice move, a community that dignifies the bodies of women and cherishes life and cuts through complexity? Spirit makes a community like Jesus that seeks to give and give and give as much as we can. Spirit, make us new. Do what only you can do. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Missio. If you're new, welcome. <laughs> uh, well, we are in a series. Like, I just gotta like stretch it out a little bit, shake it out a little bit. Because you need to do that, it's good. We are in a series, as I mentioned, um, called The Forgotten God exploring the person and the work of the Spirit. And so I thank you so much for creating space this morning in which we could try to. Um, put a little bit of the work that we've done into practice, that we could actually try to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit and actually try to live in line with the way of the Spirit. And if I was going to summarize uh, the series that we've been in and try to put, put a big idea to all the things that we've talked about, just to maybe locate us a bit today and for the work that we'll do the rest of the day, which I will try to shorten up a little bit after our prayer, I would say that the work of the Spirit and the work that we have talked about so far— we could boil down to a pretty simple but beautiful idea, which is this, that the Spirit makes concrete Jesus' work. What I mean by that uh, is that the Spirit takes and continues the work of Jesus, the thing that Jesus began, the thing that Jesus inaugurates on the cross. Oh, this is fun. 
that the work of the Spirit is to make concrete, to continue the work of Jesus. So what Jesus began on the cross, the Spirit is continuing in our lives and embodying or enfleshing in the world around us, helping us to experience the work of Jesus, helping us to participate in the work of Jesus, helping us encounter the work of Jesus. The Spirit is continuing that movement, continuing to press it into reality and to make it real. And so last week, Heather talked about a community of belonging. And we see in the work of Jesus, even at this table that we gather around every single week, that Jesus in his body and in his death and in his life makes way for us to belong to one another. As Paul says in Ephesians, the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down, and it is the Spirit, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, that tells us we belong that speaks to our belovedness, that calls us sons and daughters, that tells us and welcomes us into the family. So the Spirit is continuing the work of Jesus. And we talked about how the Spirit is the agent of creation. And John, in John chapter 1, says the whole world came into existence through the Word who is Christ But we also see the Spirit present at creation, hovering over the surface of the waters, empowering the work that Jesus does. In some ways, I think about it like Jesus is planting the seeds and the Spirit is bringing it to life. And in week one, we talked about how Jesus is about his kingdom, that he's trying to establish a kingdom, make a kingdom real. And then all the moments and stories that we see the Spirit show up in the beginning of Acts The Spirit is expanding how people think about the kingdom, challenging the way they imagine the kingdom. Israel, or the the people of Jesus' followers, think that the kingdom will be Israel, restored. And all of a sudden, the Spirit shows up, and they begin to speak languages that are not Israelite languages. And they begin to welcome people into the family that are Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. They have to wrestle with what the Spirit is doing because the Spirit is continuing to expand how we think about Jesus' work by making it real and present in the midst of us. Everywhere the Spirit goes, Spirit makes Jesus' work a bit more concrete, continues it in our life, continues to embody it and enflesh it in us. This is what Jesus tells the disciples at the ascension moment in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, Jesus is with the disciples, and this is before he's ascended into heaven. It's before Pentecost. We've read this moment a few times. And in that story, Jesus looks at the disciples and tells them this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all of Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what we just said. The Spirit will make you a witness, a participant in the thing that Jesus is doing. You will live into, see, and bear witness to the work of Jesus in all places all over the world. So that's what we've talked about. That's what we have named. In the time that we have today, though, I want to look at this very specific word, that Jesus tells the disciples about what it will look like to be witnesses and how they will become witnesses. Because Jesus tells the disciples that you will receive the Spirit, and as you receive the Spirit, you will receive power. What does it mean to receive power from the Spirit? 
what does it mean to receive power from the Spirit? I think that this is maybe the most contentious part about spirit conversations that we can have in the church. Whole denominations are divided all along this question of what does it look like to be filled with power from the Spirit? If you were to read a bunch of books on spirit, you would find different definitions of what it looks like to be filled with power. So what does it mean to be filled with power from the Spirit? And I think what makes understanding spirit power so difficult and so contentious in the modern church is that we tend to bring to this idea of spirit power a lot of what we could call maybe worldly ideas about power. And what we see as every time the spirit shows up is that spirit power looks very different than worldly power, which makes it hard to categorize and hard to fit into our imagination and hard to understand what it looks like in our own life. And here's what I mean by that. When you think about power, what ideas or words or images or people come to mind? For me, I think of like famous people or I think of powerful people or I think of politicians, I think of CEOs. I think of people with access and authority. And if you were to define like a dictionary definition of the word power, this is Merriam-Webster's online free dictionary defines it as the possession of control, authority, or influence. I think that fits my understanding and how I think about power pretty often. It is the possession of control, of authority, and of influence. So if I have power at work, I have influence, position. Authority. I have some measure of ability to control what happens in a workspace. Some measure of ability to determine the outcomes because I can determine the income. If I have political power, that probably means that I have some kind of like legal authority, some kind of access, some kind of position, an ability to influence and even slightly control what happens at a political level. If I have power in a family, smaller circumstance, but I probably have some ability to decide, to control, to influence what happens in that space. Even if I have power over my own body, I probably think about that as I have the ability to control it, to determine what happens in my body. Because I think how we think about power often in our world, and if we think about power that way, and if that's how we define power, then what you do in order to get more power is you go to the source of power. You go to centers of control. You climb corporate ladders. You gather more authority, more influence. You go to school to get more education because education often equals influence and control and access. You get elected so you can have more access and authority and influence and control. And if you want control over your body, you get disciplined. You hone your body. You try to get control over it, get more levers of control. That's not always bad. Don't hear me criticizing that all right. There's places where that kind of power is important. We were, um, last weekend I was at a cabin with some friends, and they have a very young child uh, who is very reckless. I <laughs> don't know if you've been around a two-year-old boy, but they're very reckless, very dangerous. So everywhere in the house, there's baby gates, just everywhere. Baby gates around the staircases, baby gates like stopping him from getting a stool in which he could use to climb over, baby gates to get to the stairs, just baby gates everywhere. And baby gates are a form of control. 
in a really important form of control. It stops that child from falling down the stairs. Because I don't know if you know this, that as reckless as two-year-olds are, bad with stairs. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, they can't do it. I don't know what it is. So you put baby gates up to control the movement of children. It's a form of control that is protective and that is helpful. But I think that understanding of power as control and as authority and as position, it makes understanding spirit really difficult because for some reason, every time that spirit shows up, the exact opposite of that seems to happen. It seems to move in different directions, not towards authority, not towards control, not towards positionality, but away from it, towards the margins, further away from centers of power. It seems to unleash control and create more. And in the passage that Amanda read for us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has this very beautiful moment where he contrasts how we often think about power in the world versus how we think about power in the spirit. And it is a fascinating but deeply infuriating moment. To read it, just a little bit of it again. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Just watch this. He just throws so much shade now. Not many of you were wise. Rude, Paul. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose these things that don't make any sense in a world of control, in a world of positionality, in a world of authority, in a world where good things happen from the center of control. God shows what was not those things in order to shame what is those things. Paul throws all this shade at the Corinthians to say that you were never from centers of power, and yet God chose to work through you. But then he goes on to do the same thing to himself. He says, in the next couple of verses, he says, And so it was with me. Just like you, I am in the same position, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What Paul says here, it's really beautiful. I kind of hate it. <laughs> it's okay to feel that way about the Bible sometimes, y'all. And the reason I feel that way and the reason this makes me uncomfortable is because all the things that Paul says he doesn't do are the things that I've spent my entire life working very hard to do. Paul says, I did not show up in expert wisdom. I did not show up with persuasive words. I did not show up as a scholar, as a talented communicator. I showed up in weakness and fear and trembling. And for a dude who spent 12 years getting a theological education, that feels offensive. <laughs> and it's not 
that Paul is criticizing preparation or hard work or education. But as I've been wrestling with this text all week, and even just wrestling with all the things that have been happening, and how to preach this sermon in the midst of so much cultural upheaval, preparation is good. Education is good, right? I want to be a faithful communicator of the truths and mysteries that we're all gathered here to hear about. I want to do a good job of that. But there is an insidious side to my attempt at doing a good job, which is that it always seems to keep me in control. That my education, that my performance, that my persuasion, that my skill, that those are good things when they are meant to be helpful. They are good things when they are meant to be empowering. But if I am not careful, they are about keeping me in control. It's about controlling how you see me. It's about controlling what happens in this space. It's about taking the weight of whether or not this place is successful and placing it on my own shoulders and saying that I control that. It's about controlling how you think of me. Do you think I'm smart? Do you think I'm funny? Do you think that this is like a good moment? Was it worth it? It's about control. And if I don't do a good job, this is the dark side of this equation. If I don't feel in control, if I don't do a good job, if I don't perform well, if I feel weak, as Paul says he shows up, the way my brain works is that makes me feel like I've failed. That somehow I have lost control, that somehow I have lost the game. And that is maybe the ultimate dark side of control, is that it places an impossible weight on our own shoulders. That weight keeps me in control, but it will also destroy me. I was meeting with a friend this week, and he's uh, maybe like a year into starting his own business. It's going pretty well. He's hired two employees, and he's about to hire a third. But he's at that moment where there's too much work to do. There's too many things to accomplish, and he needs to hand over some of those responsibilities to one of the people he's hired, but to do so feels like it's more work, right? You probably know this feeling if you've ever been in a job situation where you have to train somebody. Like, it feels like more work to hand it over. It feels like you don't have the space for that, the energy for that, and it feels risky to hand over control and responsibility to someone else. What if they fail? So you find yourself in this weird stuck position in control. The weight is on you, and that means that you get to control what happens. But the weight is on you. And at the same time, it means that you've not shared that weight with anybody else. So the employees who should be granted access and opportunity are kept from access and opportunity and the resources and the centers of control at the center. The very thing that would be generative and life-giving is also keeping them away. That's the tricky part about control as power. It lets you be in control, but at the end of the day, it is a limiting kind of power. It crushes those who carry it, and it limits who gets in. It limits who has access. It limits who else gets to share in authority. It limits who else gets to call themselves a part of this. 
And Paul says, I'm not going to show up that way. I'm going to show up in weakness and fear and trembling. And he says, and I'm going to show up in the power of the Spirit. Which he is contrasting with that other way of showing up. So what does it mean then that Paul says, I'm going to show up in the power of the Spirit? What is the power of the Spirit in this moment? Well, Paul explains it going on in that text. He says, we showed up in the power of the Spirit. Then he goes on to say this, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thought of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now, again, I don't know what you thought the answer was going to be when it said, here's the explanation for spirit power. Part of me is like, oh, it's going to be miracles. Like, it's going to be cool acts of power. And instead, Paul says this. What is the power of the spirit in this moment? It's the power of giving away all the secrets. It's the power of giving away all those things that are hidden and kept secret and kept removed. It is the power of God's very vulnerability being exposed to those around. What Paul says in this moment is that God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptied God's very self so that we might participate and have a place to belong. The Spirit of God reveals the heart of God to everyone around Paul, gives away all of the secrets, all of the goods, all of the resources, all of the things that were kept behind the gate. God doesn't ever seem to gatekeep God's self. Instead, the Spirit gives it away. All that was hidden before the foundations of the earth, Paul will say in Ephesians, is now made known to the Gentiles, those who did not belong, those who did not have a place through the power of the Spirit. The gates are removed, the obstacles are torn down, the table is rebuilt so that everyone has a place to belong. The Spirit gives where our impulse and our instinct is to limit. This is what spirit power is. It is to give, to expose, to reveal, to empower, to be generous. Spirit gives where we limit. Spirit reveals where I want to conceal. Spirit exposes what I so often think of as weakness. And spirit invites where I so often gate. The power of control, it is good at some things. But in the end, our power of control is always a limiter. It limits who has access. It limits who gets in. And it limits how much power is available. It does not create more. That's maybe the biggest weakness of limiting power. It cannot create anything. It can only limit. And that keeps me in control but it does not make something more. And eventually, the power of control has to give way to something better. A baby gate 
is fine for a toddler, confusing for a 25-year-old. If you can't get up the stairs at 25, someone did not empower you. Spirit power is greater than limiting power or worldly power because it creates more. And we see this all throughout the life of the early church and the stories that we have been telling and the narratives that we have been talking about. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Sunday, there's 120 disciples who are gathered in an upper room. The Spirit falls. They speak in different languages. People think they're drunk, which uh, nobody's ever thought somebody was drunk who's really in control. And then they rush out, and 3,000 people are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's disruptive, it is strange, and it creates more. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision of this like strange meal that's laid before him. God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And then he meets Cornelius, a Gentile, who gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And the whole time, Peter is trying to deny it, trying to make sense of it. He can't get his head around it. But when the Spirit shows up, all of a sudden, things are disrupted. Imaginations change, and more is created. Because Peter's hold on control and access is denied. In Acts 15, we looked at the story of the Jerusalem Council, where the disciples are gathered They're gathered together to talk about who gets to be a part of the church, and the Spirit shows up, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, everybody. And we can't impose on them the old laws of Torah. Everybody gets welcomed in. Everybody gets to be a part of this. Everybody gets to be an empowered participant. What we see throughout the story of Acts, it is like every limitation, every center of control, every place of power that the church tries to build, that the world tries to build, that tries to restrict other people from getting the spirit disrupts, unravels, and gives away. The spirit consistently disrupts by giving away all of the things that we hold on to for our own good measure. The spirit gives it away. Now as we try to close this, what do we do with that? So we see it playing out throughout the story. We see it in this chapter of Corinthians, but what do we do with the spirit who wants to continue to give away power, who wants to give access away? I think the first thing is just recognize that the spirit is with you. The Spirit is with you, tearing down every barrier, every gate, every limitation that has been established around you and has said it is keeping you from God. The Spirit is removing this. And any barrier that said you do not get to participate in what God is doing, it is being removed. The Spirit says, no, 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 you belong. The Spirit says you are adopted. The Spirit says you are a full heir. Whatever story, whatever narrative, whatever creed, whatever obstacle has been built is coming down through the power of the Spirit. No, no, you have access. You have gifts. You have been empowered. But Paul does something really interesting in 1 Corinthians 2 that is also helpful for us to hear. At the very end of chapter 2, Paul is talking about what it means to have the Spirit, and he says, the person with the Spirit makes discerning judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. 
They're not subject to those obstacles, those barriers that have been established in human ways. No, no, no. Who has the mind of Christ? Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then he goes on to say this, in the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit gives us the mind of Jesus. And this is interesting only because Paul has used this language before. He's talked about what it means to have the mind of Jesus. And I just want to read you this chunk here as we close and gather at the table. In Philippians 2, Paul goes into greater detail about what it means to have the mind of Jesus. And he says this, talking to a young church that's trying to figure out how to do life together. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't try to control, don't try to grasp. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's the mindset. Who, because he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Who did not consider his own power something to be controlled, to be grasped in order to accumulate more, in order to control, in order to limit. He didn't use it for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing emptying himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To have the mindset of Jesus is to have the mindset of the one who gives and gives and gives themselves. Who does not seize control, who does not seek to control and to instead gives control away, who creates more for those around. Mr. in the Spirit, we are invited into the mind and life of Christ to do what we see Jesus do and to live empowered by the way of Jesus. So we said at the very beginning, the Spirit is here to continue to embody to help us experience the work of Jesus. And here to make us a part of it. So that we too can participate in what Jesus is doing. Creating more. Let's pray. Spirit, we thank you that you are with us this morning. Spirit, I ask that you would be here in demonstrations of power. Not the way that I often think about power, not the way that I often talk about power, not the way that my mind so quickly wants to recategorize and redefine power, but in the way that you show it. By giving away control, by tearing down the walls that would keep us away, by rebuilding the table so that everyone has a place to belong. God, so would you do that today? Would you show up in demonstrations of power, affirm to us that we belong, that we have access, and that we have been called to participate? Would you take the inadequacy of my words, the weakness of this message, the fear and the trembling, and would you do something that only you can do with it? 
Make it more. Spirit, be with us as we know that you are. In your name we pray. Amen.